Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, tonight, Oliver goes inside the huddle with countertenor Yeston Davies. He just finished a run of Handel's Ariodante at Lyric Opera of Chicago, having recently been on Broadway in the play Farinelli and the King. But first, we take a look at Chicago Opera Theater's 2019-2020 season announcement. Will the company beat its record-breaking Dodson Scale score from last season? Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us... Get your opera voice heard, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Phone lines are open. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score, post on our Facebook page, Opera Box Score. Great to be back in the studio with you. I've been off for a couple weeks. I was doing work. I was seeing shows at Lyric Opera. Ooh. You saw Ario Dante. I saw Ario Dante. So what'd you think of the puppets? I thought the puppets were fabulous. I do like puppets, yeah. but not when they're, you know, sitting and watching me in a dark room. Uh, that creeped my you nightmares. out? No, I mean, not just a little bit, you know? I mean, it was fine because I was sitting, you know, way back in the cheap seats, you know? I was felt, felt far enough away to be safe, and I feel like that's the best way to experience good puppet work. Did you get creeped out by those puppets, Oliver? No, I love the puppets, actually. I just felt, <laughs> I felt bad for people who were up in the balcony who couldn't see the puppets. That's why so I moved kind of, down to the main floor. It's kind of a miniature man. show in yeah. an opera house that seats yeah. 3,000 people. Exactly. <laughs> we're gonna, we'll get to more of that. Lots to do with Ario Dante, Yeston Davies. No, nothing to do with Ario Dante. We're done talking about it. That was, it's over. Oh, oh okay. Well, it doesn't well. happen in, this, in the interview. We don't talk about it. Don't you really at all? Nope. He was so good in that production. And I mean, what a phenomenal So unlike actor. his real life yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. That's why he was so good, because he was so transformed. March Madness, the, the NCAA basketball extravaganza begins this weekend. My hey, bracket is filled out. That's a sports thing I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that we should probably tie this in and try to uh, maybe sing an, uh, a March of Madness scene, you know, uh, a madness scene. Well, we could, we could do another bracket. Sort of funny. You know, we did, we did that bracket for uh, the World Cup, although there's a lot of teams in March Madness, so that might, that might not Oh, play. the, the yeah. press release went out today, or the invitation yep. went out today for Lyric Opera Young Professionals. Did you get it? I did not. Oh, it's... I it, did. Yeah. Guess who's hosting that, George? Who? Opera Box Score. We're hosting. <laughs> so for those of you who are in Chicago who want to go to a trivia night about opera... Uh, look up Lyric Opera Young Professionals Facebook page and come and join the fun. It's called a uh, triviata because it's that's so how puns work. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a great like time. <laughs> madness scene. It's not at all, but we got a lot of prep to do for it. It's going to be a total blast. We'll talk about that more, I'm sure, as the weeks go by. Let's talk some opera. How about we root for the home team? And just to be clear, it's not like Chicago Opera Theater is the only home team. Obviously, there's a lot of opera there's companies a couple of them. In, in Chicago. But tonight, we are going to focus on Chicago Opera Theater. They have just released their 2019-2020 season. Weston Williams broke it down on the Dodson scale. Tell us what's on offer, Weston, and how they are doing 
in the box score. Well, I'm sure you'll remember from uh, last year with the Dodson score, they had a bit of a record-breaking year uh, because, you know, that's sort of, sort of been uh, COT's focus is this uh, diverse new works, uh, often works in English uh, and things like that. And that's definitely reflected in this season. So really, we only are dealing with um, four operas this season, which is not many compared to, you know, your even your lyric or your Met or anything in Europe. But uh, they really pick uh, picked and chose uh, well, at least if they were doing uh, with the intention of uh, winning the Dodson scale, which I'm sure they were. But it's standard Absolutely. for COT. I mean, the first two operas are a double bill, and then they got two other shows. So it's well, essentially for COT under Lydia Yankovskaya. But um, just two years ago, they were doing a double bill of Donizetti. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is... And the, the console. I think this is all sort of... I, I do think this is all moving forward. Definitely, they have a clear vision. They're sticking to it, and I think they're bringing it even farther along. So we have the first this double bill, as you mentioned. Um, and the double It's an interesting sort of double bill, and I think, uh, again, very reflective of COT, because the first one is Everest, uh, a new opera. Um, this came out in 2015. I believe it's one that premiered by Joby Talbot with a libretto by Gene Shear, and that is being paired up to uh, with Aleko, which is a rare opera by Sergei Rachmaninoff, when I definitely see Lydia Yankovskaya's uh, influence there. Um, and both of those are going to be conducted, of course, by Lydia Yankovskaya, which gives them um, a, a couple points there um, because it's a woman conductor. Um, but and it's a piece in Russian. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's two categories right there. We've got um, um, plus five points for, uh, for Everest being post-1950, plus another five for being post-2000. We've got uh, uh, Lydia conducting, as I said, and then we also have um, sort of the the hook for um, this season uh, from a, a advertising perspective. Cot is advertising this as a season of Chicago premieres, okay. so they get pretty much plus five points on pretty much everything because it's a first for Chicago, and that's sort of the angle they're going at it. So even uh, though even though the Rachmaninoff has been around for a while, it has not shown up on Chicago stages at least in uh, recorded memory. Did you uh, give them a couple points for being in Russian? Oh, yeah, we, we did. We did, yes. Yeah, yeah. Duh. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> and then coming up after that, we have uh, an opera called Freedom Ride uh, by Dan Shore. This is, of course, based on the Freedom Riders, who uh, were the uh, um, those people protesting segregation by riding the buses to Montgomery and uh, all that sort of thing. Very interesting subject, very relevant subject, I think, uh, for opera particularly. Um, and we have uh, a director of color there, Tazewell Thompson. That's plus three points. Ta I think it's Tazewell Thompson. Oh, oh excuse I me. I believe so. I've met him. I wish I could remember how to pronounce his name now. <laughs> Pretty sure it's Tazewell Thompson. He's a lovely guy. He has done everything from Broadway, off-Broadway, musical theater, opera. What a huge coup it is to have someone of his stature and standing directing at COT. And not just directing at COT. This is a world premiere opera never before seen. Another exciting first uh, for the city and for the world, presumably. I'm, I think this is the one I'm looking forward to most this upcoming season. Um, but of course, it's not the only thing. They have one more uh, sort of piece. Um, it's, as I said, it's not a very sh uh, long season, but um, this is uh, Soldier Songs by David T. Little. Um, and this is going to be um, uh, um, uh, a, a monodrama. Yeah, one one person show. Uh, there's a woman director, Ashley Tata, um, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, premiered in 2006, which is very uh, new. And it's got uh, Nathan Gunn, I believe, as the um, uh, uh, the mono of the monodrama. The titular character of the soldier. Yes, the soldier. Um, and that's uh, that should be also be very interesting. That's an interesting sort of mix if you've heard any of David T. Little's music. He does a lot of sort of postmodern influences. You'll hear a lot of rock influence. You'll hear a lot of um, eclecticism, which I think is very popular in 21st century opera. It feels very fresh. Um, uh, his, his music does. I've not heard the specific work, but I'm really interested to see how that one turns out. You're in an interesting place when Soldiers' Songs is perhaps the best-known piece that your company I know. is doing, <laughs> right? I mean, Soldier Songs, it hasn't done the rounds in the way that the Kaminsky Campbell as one has done the rounds. But Soldier Songs has definitely done the rounds in a number of uh, cities in the U.S. I don't know if it's been done overseas. It probably has. It seems been like done something overseas. Michael Mays would have done. I, I believe yeah. there was a German premiere that I was think mentioned. You're, I think you're website. right. So, so how telling is it that? Um, that is perhaps the best known. I do think this is the strength this of this specific season because it it does a really sort of fascinating mix of 
new and semi-established new, and also within the case of the Rachmaninoff, a composer you've definitely heard of, but not a composer you've necessarily seen performed in an operatic stage. Um, and I think that's a really interesting mix, and I think it's definitely part of COT's ongoing mission to sort of bring that kind of thing to the table, to Chicago audiences. So, Weston, where does that leave them in terms of a grand total? In terms of grand total, uh, I did I crunched all the numbers. I did lots of addition. I got out the old calculator to make sure I was <laughs> not getting the numbers Pencil wrong. Pencil and paper. Carry uh, the three. Little drum roll here. 81 points. Yeah. And that's without that's without knowing... Uh, we, we know some of the singers. We don't know all the singers. I, I, I would imagine that Freedom Ride, if they have a few more singers than the ones who are announced, they will also be uh, singers of color. Um, and uh, we don't actually know if all of these are new productions or not. So this could very well be... Uh, this is a low estimate, I think, for what the actual score will and turn out to be. And even at that, this number is higher than the, what they punched in last year. We could go yeah. back to the archives. Those are on I the I think website. it was 80 last year. Yes, so. I believe and so. They have, and we haven't talked about their Vanguard initiative that I don't think they've announced yet what piece they're going to be workshopping this year, but this year we had uh, Alan, the Alan Turing Opera, um, and who knows what they're going to have next year, so that could add points to this overall score. Yeah, it's a very exciting season. It's one I'm looking forward to. I think my only sort of... Uh, uh, qualm with the season seems to uh, would be that it seems to be sort of lower scale, sort of um, a smaller productions, mm -hmm. and that could turn out to be wrong because again, uh, no one's seen Freedom Ride yet. Um, however, I do think I that, think they're going to put buses on the stage. That's <laughs> a bunch of buses. Well, I mean, Everest is at the Harris Theater, right? Um, right. Everest has the Apollo Chorus as the accompaniment, as part of the accompaniment. So there's going to be a lot of people. Yeah, on that that's stage. not that's not small. I wouldn't say that was small. I, True. A little bird told but me it that is it's going to be semi staged actually oh it's it's also a one-act opera and those are genuinely a little a little tighter i i, I think it's the only reason with another one act like i feel like you do get your money's worth. that's right, plenty right. of opera for people i, I would two, only i'm only bringing it up El Tritico, just do two-thirds of it you'll be fine <laughs> i'm only bringing it up because of course cot's sort of big sort of uh power move at the end of this season is moby dick Right. which is something that's going to be a much larger scale than anything they've attempted, at least in recent seasons. Yeah. And I, I was kind of wondering uh, when I was listening for the announcement if they were going to continue more in that direction or if they were going to do something more like this where they bring it back into sort of a, a more focus on diversity and all that. Well, sort I of prefer thing. that opera companies stay in the black and do what they can handle. You know. Weston, appreciate you uh, crunching the numbers on that, and we'll uh, keep an eye on all those productions as we go into the beginning of next season later this year. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. 847 866-9687, our number in studio. Give us a call. Let us know what you're thinking about, what we're talking about. So as you said, uh, Ario Dante just wrapped up uh, at Lyric Opera Chicago, and Justin Davies was in the role of Polinesso, and I had a chance to talk to him last week uh, before the last performance, and uh, he was extremely generous uh, with his time. Uh, the interview ended up going almost a full hour, and I had to edit it down to just 30 minutes, which is actually longer than we mostly offer to our listeners. But there is actually a nice possibility that we'll put the full interview up as a special podcast feature. So look out for that in your podcast feed. I'll just say what I've already cut out of this interview is really sad. Uh, he talked about his uh, education, singing at St. John's and being an ensemble singer from the age of like eight years old and how that style of singing really informs his musicianship. He talked about how to sing Bach. And we get to the point in the interview where I ask him uh, how he manages to have so many different types of projects, how he's a very versatile singer. And I have to note of warning, sound quality is not great. We were in a high rise and it sounded like there was uh, sirens coming through the city <laughs> like every three or four minutes. So that's Chicago, everybody. So. My, I, it's funny, I did an interview, a written interview the other day for um, one thing, and the questions, it was about a CD which is coming out next week, here we are in March, and um, of, uh, of disc I've done with the Vile Consult Fretwork. 
um, which features Nyman and Purcell. <coughs> Nyman and Purcell. And of course, the interviewer wanted to know, you know, what were the links between Purcell and Nyman? And I sort of thought about it, and I thought, actually, well, Nyman has his own voice. I don't think of Purcell when I sing his music, and the pro- the program's a really nice program. But there's no- <clears throat> it could be the case that that actually there isn't there doesn't have to be a link although we always try and put things in boxes and say well this this music is from this period and it's baroque and this and and in a way that's what you were just asking is in my head i don't think of these things as different i think that when we say contemporary music we mean either well the word means music because it's contemporary it's written right now but to most people it's it also sounds like a style, you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's got to be difficult. It's got to be dif- difficult to sing, difficult to listen to, and all those kind of things. And those things don't have to exist to, for it to be contemporary. And equally, I think singing John Dowell and lute songs in a room in the twenty first century is also contemporary because if it wasn't valid music, we wouldn't be singing it. And there's the va- the validity of it is not because it's I'm not doing it because it's early music because I want to show people the music used to exist. I'm doing it because two humans who are alive are able to express themselves through it. So we've made that connection with a composer who could easily be beamed down from a spaceship today and turn up and write exactly the same song, albeit maybe with the the, the skill of a 21st century composer and come up with different harmonies or whatever. But essentially, the 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 reason behind Dowlin writing a song would still be relevant today. And that's, for me, just as contemporary as singing written on skin. And... So I don't necessarily approach it thinking I've got to sing anything differently. I mean, if the piece is written well for voice, like written on skin, which is, I think, the, the most successful contemporary opera at the moment, in the, surely in numbers and repetition, um, but it's, it, the great success of that is that the vocal parts are so well written, they, are, they fit everyone's voice for whom it was written, and by happy coincidence it fits my voice. And Who was the original? Uh, Bajan. Okay. And th- they they just all they sing so well, and the, the way the orchestration doesn't doesn't obliterate the voice. It it's as if George Benjamin was just handed this golden ticket one day. He just came out with this perfect balance of voice and stuff and, and drama and all those kind of things. Um, and so that's great, but but equally there are composers who don't write successfully or they make it more challenging and it's contemporary music so you could be in a, in a, a small opera house and still have the same problems that you, you might find um, with with the piece in say the Metropolitan Opera House and it's not so much the house that has to make you a different singer or anything like that it's it's purely the way a piece is written so let's talk about the Adders, the Exterminating Angel you know that's that was a wild piece and I loved it and I loved being in it and it was fun. I'm not sure whether the question of how easy or difficult or healthy it is to sing some of that music, especially like Audrey Luna always having to do these kind of High top lads, whatever it is, yeah. which she can do. And of yeah. course, you wouldn't want to do that if you couldn't do that. Yeah. But, you know, she, it was it was a real challenge for her to do it anyway. And it's a very emotional challenge because she's constantly facing up to the, the, the edge of reason with her voice. Yeah, and, and then people are talking about it, so then they're expecting it. They would have yeah, known. Yeah. <laughs> and... And I, you know, in that way, I just have to approach it much more. Um, I, well, put it this way: I think I don't think Tom Adders is necessarily interested or disinterested, or whatever, in whether or not in ten years' time we go. I wish I hadn't sung that because I've done. Yeah. It's for me the exciting thing about his music is that he's he, he it really does feel like it comes from a real place where he said, "Well, I know your voice can do that." So I've got it on the page, and you've just demonstrated it to me. So that's enough for him. So if you say, I'm, I don't really have a G sharp, and you go, Wah! and he goes, yeah. there it is. Yeah. And you go, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but for him, that sound is the emotion he wants to hear. He doesn't want to hear people saying, I need to present this R in a really technically yeah. sound way. I need, he just wants to hear people. He said, that's, you know, that's what opera is. We're putting on an opera, so I want to see drama. And drama means hearing noises that are not necessarily always beautiful. Yeah. And of course, he appreciates that certain singers will deliver the performance completely different from other singers. Granted, but well, I'm glad you. I, I'm, you know, I can't control the way people perceive my career and perceive how I am. But I, I don't think I think of myself first and foremost as a singer who sings music, and then of course I, I okay, I'm going to do something that's at baroque pitch or whatever. But I try and avoid. But you don't think that your ability to well, shape okay, shift. You, 
has led to the career that you're having right now? Yes, because I think, I suppose what you're getting at and what I kind of was going to say was that... But let me interrupt you. No, no. <laughs> what I meant was I meant to say it and I couldn't because of the sirens. Um, I forgot. Uh, this is my ability to adapt. <laughs> oh, no, you're right. I can't. Um, the, the, best, the best advice I can give to a young counter is when you think about a career, don't... I mean, try not to come at it from thinking that there's only one thing you can do as a counter center because I think the voice is relatively new in terms of being on the concert platform. It's only half a century ago that people laughed at counter tenors kind of thing. And I've always thought, well, if if you know how to learn music, you know how to sing expressively and you've got a voice that people want to listen to, why can't you sing? And also, mainly, you've got to you know, live, you've got to pay bills and the very boring process of having a, a job kind of thing does play quite a large part in that and that if you just do operas then that's fine but the, the thing is you will disappear into an opera house for six weeks rehearsing nobody will ne- see you do a concert therefore when they start booking concerts for two seasons ahead they won't think of you because you're in an opera house somewhere and then you go and do six performances to which people who might give you jobs in the future might come to one of them if they come and then you go to another opera house and basically you spend your year doing let's say 30 performances of operas but five months basically in the dark rehearsing where no one's I mean dark in terms of you know your your um visibility in 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 the world cloistered in a high-rise in Chicago yeah and that's fine if you love that kind of stuff but I I kind of came into opera because well I enjoy acting and I enjoy doing that kind of stuff on stage but, but I came into opera because because composers such as Handel w- were writing at a time when, you know, the art of composing wasn't necessarily a job. It was the way they made money. So they also wrote for the court. They also wrote for churches. In a sense, they they were a countertenor. Is a bit more, I suppose, like the 18th century musician who was kind of a master of all trades, jack of all trades. They're like a sort of Swiss army knife. They can just pull out, oh, I do my opera thing. So it's not so much that I have to change uh, the way I sing or anything like that. I just approach it in exactly the same way. But I keep, you know, these sort of three areas of my life, like doing oratorio and concerts, recitals and opera, as a sort of, you know, wheel of fortune. You spin it, say, right, but this is opera this month, and then it's... Yeah, like biodiversity, so you don't ruin the dirt, you know? But, but also, it's the way to survive. If I don't... If I don't do the Messiah, or if I don't sing the Bach Passions, then there's no predictability because I, I I know it's predictable to do the Messiah every year and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, it means you know in December you'll get asked to do it, hopefully, mm-hmm. and so you don't, for example, go and book. Try you try not to sort of disappear off and do an opera that starts rehearsing December the first because you know that you're going to get lots of concert offers. Whereas in the middle of August, the festivals, you know, the BBC Proms, Edinburgh Festival, stuff like that. You'll know in advance about that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, I always say to young counterstanders, keep your options open in terms of don't put all your eggs in one basket because it's fine to just do opera. And you might find that you end up doing a lot of that because you're, you particularly suit a character role or whatever it is. And we look at someone like Christophe Dumont, his career is singing Ptolemyo and Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done it how X many times, over 100 times, and, and many times in the David McVicker production. But, you know, that's... That, I don't know whether that's a choice or whether he found that was his niche or whether he hates doing recitals, but that's how he's perceived to me as, like, an opera singer who does that baddie all the time. Yeah. And and he will do other things, but for, for me as a thing, if you went up to a member of the public who might know about countertenors, I don't think they would necessarily think of him as a concert singer or something like that. Um, which, you know, if I was starting out and told, someone told me in 20 years' time you'll only be doing one role and... Or, or you'll only be singing in operas. I would find that, personally, quite sad, because I, I like singing in an in a intimate space where you can see the audience. Um, so it's, it's basically keeping, your, keeping the interest going. And I know conductors will say, you know, if I can't book you for a concert because you're doing an opera, then you just get as, forgotten as a concert singer. And then, you know, because the concert's always booked... In a, next year or two years, whereas operas booked in three years and four years, mm-hmm. so you find you being asked for concerts, and you say, "I'm sorry, the, the diary's full now." <laughs> you know, it's it's a balancing act, and it's happenstance the way it's ended up like this. But um, 
there's there's millions of ways it could go as well. I could be asked to go and sing in opera houses I've never sung in, but I might not have been asked. I mean, I'm they they might not want me. So it's it's that sort of thing. More with Oliver and countertenor Yeston Davies after the break. That's all up next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD in Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. We return now to Oliver Camacho going inside the huddle with countertenor Yeston Davies. The one thing I would change about a career is, is the amount of time you spend doing opera, sometimes for very little payback in terms of you know, airtime on, on the stage or number of shows, stuff like that. Um, but there's, there's always a balance to be struck. So with something like Marnie, there were too many ticks in the boxes not to do it. And, um, you know, Nico being a friend, me wanting to sing in the premiere of his piece, um, it was. it's also by chance, I think, um, to blow my own trumpet. No, no, not blow my own trumpet, blow Nico's trumpet, <laughs> which is that I think the... the best piece of music in it was the aria he wrote for the countertenor at the end mm-hmm. and I didn't premiere it it was done by a friend of mine James Lane in London but I remember ever, uh, Sasha Kirk who sang Marnie there said actually yes you, 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 even though you don't do too much you get the best bit you get the aria the kind of really because I think the, the role of Marnie itself was much more a, um, uh, a kind of one woman show so it was ongoing so it was it's harder then to say well there's an aria there's, it was just like Marnie all the time so I, it was it was really enjoyable just to to, to stand in the middle of the Met stage dressed in riding gear and just go, yeah. and sing, <laughs> sing the sort of thing which didn't demand the usual things in the Met, which is like, I've got to, you know, find the right space. It was just like... Yeah. <laughs> and I think Nico secretly knew that, yeah. which is why he wrote it. But it was, it was so gorgeous. Uh, you know? some, I forget one review that said, but it's the only, like, true moment in the show. Like, it's well, it's just, it, it is true. I mean, that's the, the point is that Terry... Yeah, he's he's always lying, and, and yeah. this is the first time he's actually honest. But it's too late. Yeah. Um, well, I want we have to wrap up because I actually have to be done. Oh, so no. but, I, but I wanted to like give you a chance to say some things to some young upstart counterstars. You already yeah. have actually done a lot. Yeah, upstart counterstars. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be an upstart counterstar. <laughs> no, but about like how you sing. In a house like the Met, like what are you doing technically, um, or in any uh, no, any house that's as big? As... Yeah, I mean, I, I do you know what I I think about this all the time because when I've been <clears throat> myself a member of the audience of the Met, mm. it's it's slightly depressing mm. because depending on where you're sitting, it mm. can sound totally different. But so, I've sat through. I went to Verter last year, and then the next day I went to see um, a Rizalka, and Rizalka was full of big voices Eric Owens Jamie Barton and they, you could tell they were all going for it mm-hmm. but the whole thing sounded muted it was like I was on row R and I was like this oh, nobody stuck out but nobody was quiet but at the same time nobody was loud and I just thought it's really strange and then I went up to do a, one of the um, broadcast the radio broadcast things um, in the interval and afterwards they said do you want to see the 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 gods up in the top of the theatre and said, come and have a listen to the sound. And I stood there and listened to the flute warming up. Mm. And it was amazingly clear. And I thought, this is amazing architecture to get the sound up mm. there. And I thought, well, maybe the voices do carry up there in a, in a sort of very focused way. So for me, I was like, well, what's a countertenor really sound like on stage? Yeah. It's like, but the thing is, you, you kind of, you get used to acoustic 
let's sit in the audience and you just adjust. But actually singing on the Met stage, it's and a bit a bit like that in the lyric actually. There is a sort of natural reverberation, which is you know, you get a bit of um uh echo. So it's it it's not it doesn't feel like a dry space. You know it's massive mm-hmm. and you you can sense the distance. But you have to forget about that. And I, I suppose the one thing technically I notice is that you, it's very difficult to do any sort of real dynamics. Yeah. Like, partly because you just feel like you t- to communicate, say, in the lyric with the conductor, just feel like you have to have that connection. You have to sort of basically be singing forte all the time as a countertenor. So it's not hugely um, rewarding in that sense because you always feel like you've not quite done what you can do in a recital. Um, that's but, the that's the question I was getting at, like yeah. earlier when I was talking about like the level of detail that you you when yeah, you see yeah. and listening to your recordings at home, it's like oh my god, he really, yeah, he just kissed that word. You know? Well, I mean, but that, that's that's I suppose if I that's not a regret, but yeah. if I could sing in sort of Glyndebourne Opera House all yeah. the time, which is how what? many seats? But it's so it's it's the right size yeah. for not just me, but the the, the the operas we do. I I love singing Handel to, to opera houses like the Lyric and, and 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 the Met because I know that this is the only chance really that they got they get to be done, and I think it's really important just as a service to the world <laughs> to kind of do this stuff. But I know I'm fully aware there are countertenors who have careers in much smaller opera houses around uh, around Europe or wherever, um, which I don't get to do as much because I've chosen this path, and maybe maybe that'll change and maybe I'll do less of it. Um, but it's 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 um it's always I have to remind myself that I'm in a privileged position to be able to make that kind of give you that sort of answer. And I know lots of people cut their right hand off to be able to sing at the Met, but equally they might say, Well, I, I don't want to do it all the time because it's a you know, you're having to do a slightly different thing in in terms of you're using well, more, you're, you're using more capital? <laughs> may well maybe, but I I think some people would do that and not think about it. I'm very aware of vocal preservation and looking after your voice and stuff like that. And and also singing, you know, when I sang there in Rod Linden, the first thing I did there, um, I, I just sang three arias. So I had one aria in each act, and a bit like this, actually. So it's it's less of a, you know, you think, actually, I only sang for 15 minutes. Yeah, it's minutes. not Julius Caesar. It's not Julius Caesar. Um, which you're doing. Which so. I am doing. <laughs> but that's not for a couple of years, so which time my voice will have changed. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm done doing, and actually the next five, four years, I mean, then their operas aren't announced. Well, the Agrippina's announced doing that, but that's... As Julius Caesar, there's another one which will be announced at some point. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's always scary. But I I'm sensible enough to to not do something stupid and and accept that if you're feeling so. This is my you haven't really answered the question about the mm. advice to young countertenors, <laughs> but but um, you have to trust that what you're doing, the sensation of what you're doing when you're happiest, when you're singing well, and that your teacher or somebody listening to you says, that's, that sounds good, remember what that, that feels like. And that when you're in a position where you have to compromise slightly, there's a big house or a really echoey church, that you trust that sound and don't try and, don't try and sing into what the building's asking you to do because you're, what you hear and what they hear in the audience, and it is, it's always going to be different and you can't really second guess how that's going to sound so projection is and quality of the, the tone is much more important than volume so very loud singers can sometimes not carry because it's kind of a sideways sound um, and actually think about it when you're in the street and you shout across to a friend you often whisper you go I'm just going I'm just going over there <laughs> and that makes more sense to them than yeah. I'm just going over there yeah. because something about Big sound is, yeah. is a waste of energy. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's trust trust the sensation of singing, and that's the best way to learn to sing as well. It's, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about singing in choirs. By copying, copying initially, imitating. That's how we learn language. That's how the sensation of saying something, the sensation of singing. If that if you hear a sound and then you repeat it and you and it feels like a certain way, then your body teaches your brain that that's, that feeling means that word. So words are just sounds and we know straight away how to say the word table but we don't think oh it's t-a-b-l-e and singing's like that singing is you you hear a note and you can sing it back but you don't know what note it is you don't know what frequency is you just someone plays a note and you sing it back and people who can't do that just haven't done it enough so i i do i can do some people i quite good at impressions and i think that's because my ear is 
attuned to hearing all the little things in, in, in the voice of uh, someone's voice and just repeating it, I hear the sound. I hear the sound and it just comes out. And someone says, wow, that sounds just like so-and-so. How do you do it? And I said, I don't know how I do it. I just, I hear their voice and I can do it. Um, so that's, that's my, my, my kind of one Wednesday bit of advice for, okay. for, for young upstart counsellors is, is, is listen to people you like, try and imitate the sound, see what it feels like. If it works for you, then the likelihood is... It's so you. I like Marilyn Horn, so I... <laughs> I <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm afraid that's the American disease. We all think counsellors should sound like Marilyn Horn, so that's fine. No, for me. <laughs> okay, good. I'm a tenor that wants to sound like Marilyn Horn. <laughs> no, no, but I'm just saying, <laughs> the amount of times I hear big, famous mezzos mentioned yeah. in, the, in the company of counsellors in America. Um, yeah. Yeah, but trust, trust your sound. Trust that, that, you know, when you do X, Y, and Z with your voice... <laughs> that's in the room um, uh, th- that, that'll be um, your safe space so when I sing on the Met stage if I feel uncomfortable about something then I know that I'm not trusting what I'm doing and I have to sort of think about it go in and think about it um, and of course there are times when you have to you have to sort of compromise and singers will always tell you 80% of the time you're never happy with your singing like there's a famous singer who said you know 95% of their career was spent singing concerts they didn't think went well but it's it's the body is you know a living organism which you wake up every day and it's, it gives you something different so you, you you've got to have your safe space where you know you're happy singing and and um and not to give away too much we always give thoughtful answers to everything i've asked and i'm going to ask you a really hard question and okay. see if you can answer it in like 45 seconds okay yeah because you've um, got to go to work <laughs> yeah any uh, advice about color tour? Because ah. yours is so good. And well, I'm fact, like, okay, th- I'll tell you this free, which is that you're not the only person to ask me and then say yours is really good. And I'll tell you, I don't think I'm very good at Coratura. So that's, so there's the mystery of life, which is that okay. I'm not happy with my Coratura and I don't know how I, I do know I had to decide that you have to do it. My advice, I suppose, um, is, and I, I, I and this is 45 seconds, I'll try and get this down. <laughs> no, it's okay. But yeah. I, I gave some lessons recently to some, some opera singers at the Royal Academy of Music. And they, again, they said, oh, I, you know, they sang some coloratura arias. And I said, how do you learn this? And they said, well, just sing it. I said, yeah, but how are you going to sing it in five years' time when you've forgotten how you sang it the first time? And they said, well, I said, look, even though you might be able to sing it once, what we tend to do is sing stuff, music through, and repeat it and get to know it. With coloratura, it's the one example of where you actually, I think it's much better to start at it from a very boring technical point of view, is that let's say you have four bars of runs. Start with the last four semiquavers, then add the penultimate four, then the middle four and the first four. So you're not going in the direction of the music from the beginning and, and getting more and more tired. You start with the back so that when you start that run, you're going towards something that you've... You, you really feel comfortable. You're, you're and memory, yeah. a bit like, yeah. And, but but I, what I tend to do with any run is I will do a healthy staccato on each note. So not kind of, um, glottal, not a glottal staccato, but with a diaphragm, just slowly, ha, 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 whatever it is. Then I would do different rhythms with the same thing, go, ha, 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 and then back rhythms, ha, 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 dotted, and then, ha, ha, ha. This is not a really good example because I'm not seeing cats in it. It sounds horrible. Who is this guy? It's awful. It's agricultural noise. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, oh. but, um, I had a late night. Anyway, um, but basically put it apart. As a, as a pianist, or at, I was an oboist, and you, you just have to basically teach your muscles to do it so that when you're flying at certain speed, you're not thinking about it too much. And also it's a way of learning music, so you just have to put it apart like that and do it. Um, Marion Horn, you talked about, she used to set a metronome mm-hmm. at a certain speed and she would sing, she would do all that exercise stuff and then when she wanted to sing the phrase she would sing it at 50 and if any note was out of place, she wouldn't go to 51 so she'd be, and for 30 days she'd, or whatever, she'd turn the knot dial up and every time she, she ticked off a tempo, she'd like move it up a bit and then you know where your voice, you, you really you know that let's say 80 90% of the time, it's going to be fly and it'll be mm-hmm. fine, um but it's it's always in the lap of the gods because the orchestra goes at slightly the wrong speed as it did the other night in in um, in uh, what's it called Aridante. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's slightly too slow, suddenly all your breath 
completely buggered, as we mm. say. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a six-bar bit of coloratura, you suddenly think, I'm going to have to take a breath here because I, I know at this speed I can't get through it. Yeah. And then your brain tells you you can't do it, so you stop. <laughs> um, but that's the only advice I can do is actually be really boringly patient with it. Pull it apart. Find interesting ways of making it not the same phrase. Backdot it. Do triplets, whatever. Sing it slowly. And try and get all the nuts and bolts in the right place before you put the accelerator on because then only only then can you actually trust that what you're doing because the thing is and this is my last thing is that in a run the reason coloratura can go wrong is because not every single note is properly sung into the voice so you might have eight successful notes but there's one in the middle which is a little bit weak which will be weak if you were singing slowly and you have to give that one attention you have to nurture that that will be natural between the A and the C or whatever and then you find the problem, you say, oh, that's why when I go to the top, I'm a bit trapped. It's because I'm not seeing that B properly, so it's, it's having consequences. And only by stopping and pulling it apart do you realise that. And it's very boring and it's sort of stuff, but I, without fail, every time I do, do a lesson with somebody where I do that, and I make them stand there and for like 20 minutes go through every note, going, ha, 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 and I say, right, let's do it at speed. And they go, and they go, oh, wow. I say, yeah. And I say, that won't necessarily happen every time, but the process of doing that has proved to you and to me that it does do something, and that's better than just going, I'm scared of coloratura and singing through and walking away. Yeah. Well, that is exhausting. <coughs> uh, yeah, I'm exhausting. No, no, you're not exhausting. What I'm saying is that, like, considering all of your at least recorded output at this point, yeah. you know, um, that's a lot of coloratura phrases you've picked apart, you know? And I think yeah. about something like Vivica... You know who? Also- well, I mean, everyone also everyone has different techniques. Yeah. I mean, you look at Vivica, you know, when she, I mean, her jaw is extraordinary. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't. That's not something I could do. So yeah. I'm not going to try and copy that. Yeah. Um, and countertenors all have different ways of doing it, whether it be completely on the breath and the diaphragm, yeah. or, or putting H's in, or whatever. And it's something that will work for you. And, and people go at different speeds, mm-hmm. and you just have to find what works for you. And as I said, no matter what you think the audience is going to perceive it differently. And I, I've had many concerts where I just thought, I really shouldn't have sung this aria because I just can't sing it. And somebody said, oh, your coloratura is great. And I'm like, fine. But maybe I'm being harsh <laughs> critic because I grew up listening to singers like Andres and David Daniels, and I'm like, right, that's the, that, that's the, that's the gold standard of singing coloratura. I want to do that. It's fine. And then now I hear people doing just the most extraordinary things. I'm like, I could never do that. Like Franco Fagioli? Or yeah, I mean, like a... well, Frank, well, Frank is more like the range of the voice. I don't quite know where that came from because yeah. about five years ago, he was just an alto. And yeah. suddenly he's like, what, you suddenly turn into Cecilia Bartoli? <laughs> um, which is, it is fine, but, you know, I, I don't want to do that. But it's, it, it's, um, you become a very harsh critic the older you get because you get so used to when you first hear other singers, your gut reaction is always probably right about whether you like the way they sing or like their voice and all that kind of stuff. But then the more you get to listen to somebody, you start to, you know, you, you, you start to like their singing for what it is rather than just having a kind of gut reaction to it. But I think it puts pressure on you as a singer if you spend too much time thinking about what other people can do because you forget then that people want to come and hear you sing and do stuff and for them what you might think is okay coloratura is really good because you're comparing it to something that they're not listening to at the time but that you've heard on recording. And recordings are always fake. You know, people... I'm Felix Jaruski telling me about a phrase in Vivaldi and I said, he said, I said, that's a, such a long phrase in some Vivaldi cantata. I mean, it goes on for like 13 bars of coloratura and he goes, yeah, we just edited it, we just did two bits, which is fine. That's the magic of recording. Um, but it's... Sorry, Philippe, I hope you're not listening. No, no, it's, <laughs> I'm sure he, he, he was in 2005, so it's a while ago. He's done fine out of it. Um, but it, I, I also like hearing coloratura, which doesn't quite go successfully where yeah. people have to breathe in the middle, because it really is a sort of, it's an expression of emotion. And so, it, again, it goes back to emotion. It doesn't bother me too much if people breathe in the middle of things. Like that. But that's another reason why I love Marilyn Horne, especially the live recordings, because you hear... <laughs> She's really working, and it's yeah, not yeah. like it is on her studio recordings. You no, know, there's, no. like, you know, there's a note out of tune, or yeah. the vowel change in a weird way, or something like that. You know. Yeah, well, that's live performance. Is yeah. why it's it's so good, and we should always aim as musicians to sing something first and foremost with emotion, because with with emotion, um, you get something that the composer has been unable to write on the page, which we call interpretation, but it's an unplanned interpretation. So you do something which is that you feel that with the music it's come out of the music which 
possibly links you to that composer. That's the experience that they had to, to emit this piece onto page. If we just go for technique and perfection, then all we're doing is serving the written page. So that's, that's, for me, that's got a limit in interest. And so an audience will respond subconsciously to somebody who's emotive than, than technically perfect, perfect. So that's when I listen to singers who are technically perfect, I understand why audiences go crazy for it. But it has a shelf life for me in terms of, like, once you've heard it, that's it. And if it ever doesn't sound like that, it's disappointing. Whereas hearing somebody who's got something to say emotionally, you know that that's the only time you're going to hear it like that. That's really exciting. That's what live music's about. Here endeth the lesson from Yeston Davies and Oliver Camacho. So we're going to put the full interview up as a special podcast um, because it was just too good. And, you know, I've asked so many singers over the years to talk about their color tour technique, and they always seem to shy away from that question because I think for some people they don't know how they do it. But Yeston Davies basically admitted that, like, he's not good at it and he has to work at it and this is how. And I'm so glad that he was, like, vulnerable and open enough to do that. Uh, I will help him promote his newest recording, which just literally came out. It's called If. Uh, it's an album of pieces by Michael Nyman and Henry Purcell, 300 years separating those composers. Uh, and mm. that's with the vile concert called Fretwork, and that just came out. And we also mentioned briefly, I don't know if, I, if I, I, we actually heard it, uh, a recording that he made with Carolyn Sampson uh, of uh, chamber duets with piano. Uh, the CD is called Loss Is My Quiet. And I found out that uh, if you purchase Loss Is My Quiet, he actually gets royalties. In the age of streaming, uh, there are very few artists who are actually making royalties off, off the recordings. But for some reason on that spe specific recording, he actually gets the, the royalties if you purchase the recording. So, so bye, bye, so bye. Buy Fantastic interview, Oliver. Thank you so much for that. Again, if you missed... Yeston Davies' performance in Ariodante, you really missed something. He was absolutely transformed physically in terms of his acting. It was really a phenomenal performance. Coming up after the break, man, conductors are repping it this week in Opera Land. That's up next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Ricardo Muti joined the musicians of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra on the picket line and made a galvanizing statement to the press, quote, Here in this building, we don't entertain people. Muti said, We are not entertainers. Music is not entertainment. It is culture. It is sacrifice. It is evolution of the mind and the heart and this makes this orchestra really a treasure that is priceless end quote muti mike drop our own anthony Berezi saved the day when a power outage at opera southwest's venue las puertas halted the performance only to find the super titles inoperative when the power resumed Berezi spontaneously responded to the situation by speaking interpretations of the resets aloud from his conducting post at the continuo harpsichord Opera in the Heights and the Pacific Opera Project will be presenting a co-production of Puccini's Madama Butterfly next month in a version which ditches the original Italian libretto in favor of an English and Japanese translation. An article in the conservative online magazine American Thinker claims that the Metropolitan Opera hates whites because of its comic portrayal of Tyrolese soldiers and for, quote, belittling Catholics in Laurent Pelli's acclaimed production of Donizetti's Daughter of the Regiment. 
Bernstein celebrations continue at the Ravinia Festival, which just announced their 2019 summer season. Candide, Trouble in Tahiti, and a reprise of Mass starring Paolo Sot comprise the Bernstein festivities. ARC offers just as sassy counterpart to AOC, continues to kill it on social media, hosting an AMA for composer GFH in advance of his recent performances of the works by Parrot, Shaw, and Handel at Lincoln Center. Over to the DL, Alexander Antonenko was replaced by the tenor Gregory Kunda after struggling through the first act of last Wednesday's Samson and Delilah by Sasson at the Met. Kunda, a 65-year-old Belcanto specialist who graduated to dramatic roles, was last heard by Met audiences in 2007. And on this day, March 18th, it was the premiere of Ire a Napoli by Pietro Mascagni that was in Cremona in 1885. And L.A. opera music director and conductor James Conlon turned 69 today. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Opera Box score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. So what audiences don't actually realize is that we have a bear trap set on a timer so that if you go past two minutes, it will clamp on your leg and possibly <laughs> amputate you. I and know. you really did that one, like at one fifty. I think you got to like one fifty eight. I live like to see another day. Yes. <laughs> Fabulous! I have no idea what all those initials stood for that I was reading. Okay, so uh, ARC uh, Anthony Roth Costanzo. Oh yeah, is opera's sassy counterpart to AOC Alexandro Alexandria Ortcasio. Cortez mm. and uh, what's an AMA? An AMA is an Ask Me Anything, and it's hilarious. <laughs> like if you, so we're talking about this thing, and we didn't really give you the full details, but on our website you'll find the link to a video that Lincoln Center produced uh, in conjunction with the concert that ARC did with ASBO, ASBO, <laughs> and the Philharmonia Broke Orchestra. It's an Ask Me Anything with George Frederick Handel, and it's hilarious. It's not hilarious, I, but it's no, it's really, really smart. It's, it's funny. delightful. It's really funny. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah. I, I watched it, and it's cute. And yeah, you can go to operaboxscore.com and look at that link. You should also, while you're there, watch the video of Anthony Bereze saving the day by reading out these. He's, he's doing yeah, it from so heart. He's not us, reading them. Let's give us a little background. So go for there it. was a power outage mm-hmm. at the venue las puertas where they hold the performances mm-hmm. uh, of opera southwest yeah and then when the power came back on the super titles weren't working uh, this so, was a perform i said saved the performance but yeah. i didn't say what the performance it's was it's a rossini's uh, cambiale di matrimonio i think is what it was yeah and it's, so you know rossini operas um once you get to the aria you pretty much know what's happening but it's a lot of you know psycho recit so uh anthony uh would spontaneously translate the psycho recit <laughs> from the harpsichord just like it, it's it's such an amazing video to watch i mean just like the knowledge it takes of that of the opera of what's going on in order to do that it's not just a matter of translating he's also he's playing the harpsichord playing the harpsichord <laughs> it, it's it's amazing i highly recommend only Bereze would have the balls to do that on the spur of the moment oh, i mean not that you would like plan for that to happen obviously but like the thing about him is that he absolutely knows what he's talking about. He ha- takes no prisoners, and he just goes for it. Yeah, and he, he doesn't wait either. He starts while while it's dark, before the power even comes back on, if you watch the video. he's uh, it's, it's amazing. Sp- I love it. Outspoken seems to be the theme of the week with these conductors. <laughs> I, I was surprised and impressed that Ricardo Muti joined the musicians at the CSO. Yeah. And... and gave that quote to the press. And not, I don't agree with that quote. I, I, I think theater, music, opera is to entertain. He's talking about purely instrumental music, mm. but go ahead, Weston. Well, I, I think uh, that's a whole different conversation right? True, it's <laughs> that true. we can dive into. But uh, in terms of the support from Muti, I think it's really extraordinary because often I, I think at best you'll see like a... Uh, you know, a statement, um, and it'll usually be very neutral, but this unequivocal uh, support, I think, is really uh, interesting to see for a music director of his stature in this whole 
developing saga. Of course, they are they seem to be no closer to a uh, uh, a compromise now than they were um, last week. Um, and I think it's really it's really exciting to see him standing up and so publicly. But also, I think it's interesting how much this story is kind of spilling out of the classical music world. Um, I've I'm actually a little bit jealous because remembering the the lyric orchestra strike, the, I, there wasn't this degree of news articles about it. Uh, no. I think uh, uh, Tony Prickwinkle, who's one of the mayoral candidates, uh, actually stopped by and voiced support for the musicians. I was like, where were the mayoral candidates? That's, candidates that's why lyric? I'm voting for Tony. That's a whole that's a whole other thing. But why I'm voting for Tony, I, I, Sir Andrew Davis over at Lyric, where was he during the strike? Did, did he ever come down officially on one side or the other? I believe he did. Sa- I, and I, this is all vague memory. Uh, Go ahead. I, I believe he did release a statement in support of the musicians, yeah. but I don't think he went down there personally. And of course, he, you know, again, he might have, and I just didn't hear about it because the news wasn't covering it as thoroughly as they are this strike. And I think it just goes to show um, how how important the outcome of this strike is going to be when it occurs. Exactly. And to Muti's point was. Not he was not against the orchestra association. He was for the musicians, and right. I think that's a fine detail that is uh, required to be added in. I will say I agree with you, George. That I, what Muti said, I stand with the musicians too. I'm I, I agree with him on most parts, but to elevate music to such a high level that it's like untouchable. That's like the type of attitude that makes people feel unwelcome you know, in the theater, mm. in the concert hall. And I think Muti is uh, guilty of sometimes, you know, making these things so sacred and then, you know, yelling at the audience if they cough in the middle of the thing, you know. It's, <laughs> that's, that's him, you know. And is like, it because I, he's Italian? God, God love him. Like, he's amazing. He's a genius. He has an amazing career, blah, you know. But, you know, we have to have a little give and take here. Like, the, the people are not as educated as they used to be. So just be a little nicer, and, and yes. And, and speaking of uneducated listeners, I want to talk a little bit about this article from American oh, Thinker. Gosh, heavy, heavy air quotes on that. This guy is is something else. Um, I I don't I don't think we want to post this article on our site. It, it it's garbage. Uh, it's um uh, it, he just kind of rails against uh, this supposed anti-white. Sentiments for like one of the most conservative opera houses in the United States, I might add, and it's it's it is bizarre to me that these people still exist. And uh, well, I'm, I'm waiting it, for his article to come out when uh, Asians are poorly portrayed in Torundot or yeah. when women with schizophrenia are poorly portrayed in Luchito Lamamore. Yeah, th- this, don't hold your breath. Yeah, th- this guy's <laughs> not not worth anyone's time. There's 97 comments on this story. I'm, I'm, we're not going to post it on the website, but we'll, we'll, we'll tweet this clown and we'll see if we can poke him with a stick. And yeah. So really some. quickly about um, the Ravinia Festival. There's lots of Bernstein. I don't know why they're doing mass again, but I'm glad because I'd love to get Paul Rizot, uh on the show. Maybe we'll interview you mean, him. Yeah. You mean you'd like to see Matt Cummings reprise <laughs> his role <laughs> true. as chorister number but 56? But they are doing a Mahler. They're doing a Mahler. Eight. A Mahler in the night. Vi- uh, no, a Mahler. Symphony, the Symphony of a Thousand, whatever one that is. Oh, yeah, that, that's number and six. And it has everybody in it. It's got a huge, huge cast. I think Angela Mead and Leah Crocetto and Joel Harvey, um, Michelle DeYoung. Um, yeah, it's a it's a huge Mahler cast. Love me some Mahler. Um, and I'll also say that there's a lot of great vocal activity happening at Ravinia Festival. We'll talk about it when we go, get closer to the season. But Angel Blue is giving a recital, which I'm excited about. Time to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad Call on Opera Box Score. It's been great to be back in the house tonight. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. Gentlemen, to the good calls and the bad calls, does anyone have anything to throw into the Coliseum that is <laughs> studio number one at WNUR? Uh, well, I have a good call, and that is spring coming. I feel it in my bones. Then that's all I have to say. <laughs> so I want to point to something we've already read, I'm sure, but Christine Gerke profile in the New York Times over the weekend. It's a beautiful love letter to Christine Gerke, and she deserves it. That's a mm-hmm. great, great photo spread, everything. Love it. 
That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, no, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review if you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera with a pint of Guinness in your hand. Yes, I know St. Paddy's Day is over. Just keep drinking. We're back on Monday, March 25 at 9 p.m. Central when we take a look at the 25 most performed operas of the 2017-2018 season. Plus, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment.